Have you ever, I mean, really, have you ever, I mean, seriously here, have you ever wanted to die? I know it's a little dark for a Sunday morning, but hear me out. Not like I had the flu so bad one time, or my head was so full and the Sudafed hadn't kicked in yet, and I was just lying on my bed. Not that kind of wanting to die. I mean, like, for real, have you ever hurt so bad inside? Maybe because of an ongoing struggle with depression or bipolar disorder or other mental illness. Maybe because of external factors, loss of a spouse or a kid or another loved one, loss of a job or change in career, life just not turning out the way you hoped, desperate medical diagnosis, something terrible. Have you ever just looked at life, your choices, the circumstances that surround you and thought, I'd be better off not doing this anymore. I have. I'm fortunate. I've never struggled with clinical depression to my knowledge, but in the months after my mom died, when it became clear I was going to have to leave the monastery that I'd called home for 15 years, when I had to go to the Pope and ask for backsies on vows I thought were lifelong. When I got divorced as a priest, uh, yeah, there was a while there where I was miserable enough. I, I wasn't sure I wanted to keep going. Now, thankfully, I had enough good people surrounding me. Nothing happened. But not everybody's so lucky. There was a news story came out this week about a young girl from Belgium. 
She was uh, 17 when the airport attack took place back in 2016. I don't know if you remember this. I'll be honest, I didn't, which tells us just how messed up the world is that we can forget terror attacks. But there was an airport got blown up in Brussels six, seven years ago. And this girl was like a high school senior on the way to a road trip sort of situation. And yeah, the, there was an explosion at the airport and lots and lots and lots of people died. And she watched it and it messed her up real bad, real bad. Depression, PTSD, afraid to leave the house, the whole kit. So for the last six, seven years, she's been in and out of mental health facilities trying to get things straight. She's, she's tried to put it back together and, and eventually her doctors just said, you know what? I think you're right. Probably be better off dead. So they killed her. And they call it euthanasia, a good death. It's a lie. It's a polite death. It's a convenient death. The person who's sick, we don't have to hear whining anymore. It makes us feel better because we can't see their suffering any longer. And it's attractive for the person who's hurting. Because, of course, the pain absolutely is real. But like all lies, it comes from hell and ultimately leads there. Now, that is not to say that the poor girl who died is going to hell. I don't want anyone to take that away. She's clearly so broke, I wouldn't dare presume on God's providence there. But, but every one of us, Every one of us has been or will be at some point in the face of something so bad that we want to quit. And I think it's worth in moments like that remembering this could go very wrong. I mention that today because the lepers in today's gospel are in precisely that position. Their life is so bad they are genuinely convinced they would be better off dead. How do I know? Because of the Samaritan. See, we hear the word Samaritan and we immediately add the adjective good, right? We all know the story of the good Samaritan, so we think Samaritans are good. We even write laws about good Samaritans, right? You're not supposed to do that. When you hear the word Samaritan, you're supposed to think bad, dirty, ugly, immigrant, criminal, thug. That's what you're supposed to think, because that's what they thought. The sheer presence of the Samaritan made them unclean. So the lepers are unclean because of the skin disease they have. And it's a nasty skin disease. It stinks. If it goes untreated long enough, body parts start falling off. Nobody wants to be around you. Nobody can be around you or they become unclean, infected as it were. But, but the Samaritan, of course, he's unclean even before his disease. He's messed up no matter what. And these people are so desperate. They allow the unthinkable, the untouchable to come into their little leper colony outside the town and hang out with them. Which is why... When they see the Lord Jesus and they call him master, something so profound happens. Collectively, 
they call out, right? Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, Jesus knew, Jesus knew, once he said, go show yourself to the priests, that the Samaritan couldn't go show himself to the priest. Samaritans weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't even allowed in the vicinity of the temple. He couldn't get anywhere near a priest to get the bill that he'd been cleansed. Those other nine, though, they did know that. They weren't confused about it at all. And the moment they realized they were clean, the reason they didn't run back to Jesus was because they saw the Samaritan going, and they ran as far and fast as they could the other way. They'd come up against the face of death. They weren't ever going to put themselves in that position again. And of course, the worst part of being sick was the social isolation, the not being able to participate in the life of the community. See, they were convinced their lives weren't fixable. Their path was irredeemable. They were incurable, unhealable, literally untouchable. But there was one. There was one who would touch them. One who could cure them. One willing to soil himself in order to heal them. The true Samaritan who had to make himself other in order to save them and in order to save us. Naaman, the leper from the first reading, has all of the same kinds of things going on. He's got the nasty skin disease. People have to stay a certain distance from him. But he's valuable to the community. He's a competent warlord, right? So they need him for the army. So Elisha, the man of God, he, he finds a way to cure him, and he tells him to go down into the Jordan. Naaman presses back, and he says, this is real stupid. I've been to the hot springs back home. It didn't do nothing. But, but Elisha presses. He says, no, it has to be the Jordan. And the reason it has to be the Jordan is because the Jordan's the river the people cross to go into the promised land. They go down into the waters, and they come back out on the other side in Israel. They're now a nation with an actual place to call home, which is why Naaman, wanting to make this gift to offer sacrifice in return, right, goes back with mule loads of soil. He's taking the land with him. He's saying, I now belong to your God, and please may he belong to me. Where there is life, no matter how big or small, young or old, rich or poor, smart or stupid, where there is life of any sort, there is hope. These last weeks, as we've been laying the foundations of Catholic social teaching, the next four weeks we have still to go through, this sits at the very bottom. It's the base of all the rest. If you understand this one thing, and it is kind of a you get it or you don't sort of thing, but if you understand this one thing, all the rest makes sense. 
If you fail to understand it, or you try to talk yourself out of it or find exceptions to it, you'll give up on the whole operation. This one thing which sits at the very bottom of all of our ethical decision-making, all of our responsible behavior toward ourselves and other people is this. Each and every human life, from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death, is worthy of the same protection, respect, and care as every other human life. And the moment you start drawing boundaries around who counts and who don't, whether that's because they're not born yet or because they're too old and demented, whether that's because they're poor or they're sick, or even whether they want to die themselves, the moment we begin excusing that, we're no different than those lepers who were bad but knew that the Samaritan leper was worse. We're no different than those who would say, Samaritan, Samaritan, dirty Jew, dirty Jew. We're no different than those who thought it fit to enslave people in this land or steal the land we're standing on from the people who were standing on it before. The moment we're willing to do that, close up shop and go home. Because every other claim we make, whether it's about labor or care for the environment or care for each other, rights and responsibilities within society, the moment we touch any of that, now we are just posturing politically. But if you cling to this one principle, that there is no person not worth saving, that there is no life not worth protecting, that there is no place on earth not worth securing the dignity of every person living there, then you've captured the heart of the gospel. Not simply, not simply the knowledge on a natural level that people that are like me deserve respect, good, first step, but that you are worth so much. You personally are worth so much, and every person you've ever met, including the guys whose guts you hate the most, is worth the price of a God. That God loved you enough to live for you, to sweat for you, to bleed for you, and to die for you. And that he makes that same life's blood possible, accessible, drinkable, every day. And that the same is true for all of those you or I would in our own brokenness exclude or accept or find a way to pass off or ignore. I celebrated a birthday this week, turned 40. If King David's right, I'm halfway home. Span of a life is 70 years or 80 for those who are strong, he says. I have a lot of good memories of birthdays because my first 21 were shared with my grandmother, my dad's mom, who lived with us. And I remember one specifically, I was five, which would have made her 80. And I was sick, not dying sick, just like normal kids sick, flu or cold or something, strapped out, I don't know. They kept me in my bedroom in the back of the house better part of the week because they didn't want me to infect the rest of the house. But when it came time for the birthday proper, nobody felt quite right about leaving me locked up in my bedroom. So they brought me out into the living room and they kind of pushed one couch into the corner so I was away from everybody else, but so I could still be there. And then they would like bring my presents over to me. I remember one of the cousins like literally pushing 
Then Gran brought me over a piece of pie. We're pie people for birthdays, not cake. My sister made these wonderful little apple pies last night. Um, Dad's on a gluten-free kick right now, and so she used special flour in the whole bit. When we were cleaning up afterwards, Dad, like a little kid, had just eaten the middle out of the whole thing. <laughs> Anyhow, Gran brought me over this piece of pie, and she didn't, like, spoon-feed it to me. I mean, I was big enough and well enough I could still feed myself, but, but she sat on the couch with me. She who was probably the most vulnerable of all of us because she was the eldest, right? 80 years old. If she got sick, it could be a real problem. But she didn't run and hide. She sat next to me on the couch, laid her hand on my chest as I ate, and told me stories till I fell asleep. That was a good birthday. Even being sick. It's better to be alive and sick than dead and well. It's better to be alive. Because where there's life, there's hope. And that's the reason we do this. One man died that we all might live. And that we all might draw our hope from here. From him. Forever. Forever.